This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, how are you doing this afternoon? My name is Mark Tui. It is a pleasure to share some of your afternoon with you over the next couple of hours. Always appreciate your company. You can text us at the program at 71010 anytime during the show, and you can interact with us uh, when we open up the phone lines on uh, special uh, caller segments at one eight five five six three three. A ten ten. Wanted to. We're going to have some interesting stuff. There is a brand new research study out of the University of Houston. We're going to bring you uh, to the researchers, and it is a study that possibly sounds like it could be a game changer in the fight against the opioid epidemic. Thousands of Canadians die from overdoses of opioid narcotics. Fentanyl has been a scourge of our cities, our communities, our families across the country. It's a synthetic uh, opioid, and uh, it kills people. It is so potent, and carfentanil, even more potent. Uh, But researchers at the University of Houston have just completed a study, and they may have invented a vaccine that will protect people from fentanyl. And so if you are someone who is trying to kick the habit, uh, this could be enormously helpful because we certainly don't have enough resources for people who are trying to fight addiction to start with, but it is so powerful, this drug, that if you have a, you know, if you get clean and you stay clean and you work hard on that, if you have a tiny little stumble, you're back on with this, uh, this drug, fentanyl in particular. And this vaccine seems to block your brain's ability to absorb the fentanyl. So not only do you not get high, from fentanyl, so it allows you to carry on or get back on the wagon, if you will. Uh, but it might even protect people, perhaps, from overdoses. We'll find out. We'll talk to them later in the program. And uh, it will be uh, interesting. I've said many times that in order to address the healthcare crisis in this country, the affordable housing crisis in this country, uh, any number of critical public policy events, we cannot rely on politicians. We cannot rely on the traditional experts in the field because they all have a vested interest. And by definition, an expert is a person with very narrow scope. They spend all their time focusing on one thing. They're an expert in one thing, maybe two, maybe three, but not in everything. And so when you appeal to them, often during the COVID epidemic, we've been appealing to medical experts or public health experts, a very narrow field of study. And we've been asking them to make policy decisions that are incredibly broad. That's a mistake. But what can we learn from everybody's expertise? And we need to throw these creative ideas up on the blackboard, up on the whiteboard in a brainstorming session, coast to coast. That's your job. That's my job to prompt this conversation And we're going to talk with uh, one of Canada's astronauts to find out, well, what can we learn from space that might help us address healthcare issues, especially in smaller communities in remote locations? It doesn't get much more remote than the space station. And how do you treat an injury or an illness on orbit or on your way to the moon or Mars? You know, is there anything we can learn there? Technology, procedure, protocol, basic skills? We'll find out because I think that could start to open up some minds and get some creative juices flowing, the kind of things that we need to be able to do if we're going to address any of these issues, especially healthcare. I wanted to start just off the top, though, about uh, developments in Ontario yesterday, then last night, and people reacting to them today. Uh, Ontario is 
in a process of introducing what the government calls strong mayor powers. The idea was to give uh, mayors of the biggest cities in the province, initially Toronto and Ottawa, uh, powers a little bit more akin to the kind of powers that a U.S. city mayor has. And I support that idea because our cities are where we live. 80-plus percent of Canadians live in cities, and yet our cities are often governed by a process of local councils and uh, and other constructions that we have created that are ad hoc, that were never really well designed to start with, and were often intended to govern tiny little villes, little communities. The city of Toronto is Canada's sixth largest government. It's got a $15 billion operating budget plus a $10 billion a year, I think, a capital budget. It spends more money. It administers, looks after the interests of more citizens than all but four provinces. It's massive. To 50,000 plus employees. They don't even know how many employees they have. That's how many employees they have. And yet it is run by a council on procedures that were invented to run a tiny little community. And they're the same. And that doesn't make sense to me. And so the provincial government had come in with what they thought was the answer to give the mayor the ability to sort of accelerate the process of working things through council, especially on affordable housing. They had decided that, well, the answer was to give the mayor of these big cities veto over decisions that council makes. Well, that was just a dumb plan because that just makes things slower because the mayor has to wait for council to do something wrong and then can veto it. That doesn't accelerate anything. So they've retooled and they've relaunched yesterday a new version, new and improved, now with extra raisins, uh, version of their Stronger Mayors uh, Better Cities Act or whatever it's called that uh, basically does the reverse veto. It gives the mayors of these cities the ability to pass anything they want within the scope of a provincial priority with only one-third support of the council. So essentially giving the mayor basically two votes for every one. And people are up in arms because that's an affront to democracy. No more majority rule. Well, you're right to be upset. But the province is within its power to do that. They're also within their power to directly appoint the chairs of what in uh, Ontario are called some regional governments. Outside of the big cities, a lot of the smaller cities, still big cities, Mississauga, you know, 600, 700, getting close to a million people probably, is part of a regional government with uh, Brampton and Caledon. And the regional government spends the big money, police, fire, ambulance, roads, sewers, all that kind of stuff. That's regional governance. But all of these regions across the province have different ways of electing their councils, different ways of electing their chairs. They are responsible for different things. from There's, It doesn't make any sense. And so the province decided, well, affordable housing is so important, we need to know who's going to be in charge. Uh, they want to directly appoint the chairs just by government. And people are saying, well, that's not true. I need to be able to vote. Well, in in those regions anyway, you never could vote for the chair. It was always kind of a old boys club where once you were elected to council, you might get appointed to the regional uh, council, and then there you decided who the chair was. So the province is within its powers, but I think the big thing here, the big question for us to take into consideration moving forward is, should cities have powers that are well-conceived? Because right now, if you look at Canada's constitution, cities don't exist. 
there are two levels of government in Canada. There's a federal level, which has some powers defined in our Constitution, starting with the British North America Act. And there are provinces, which have powers defined in the British North America Act. There are no cities. We didn't live in cities back then. The cities are creatures of the province in each and every province across the land. And so it's the province that's responsible for picking up the garbage from my front yard when I put it out on collection day. What the province has done in Ontario and each and every one of our provinces and territories is say, you know what, you guys in that area around Toronto, you sort it out yourselves. You figure out how much it's going to cost. You figure out how you're going to pay for it. We don't want to be bothered with it. You get together. If you want to elect somebody, that's fine. You figure it out. But all the power is, rested, is vested with the province. Maybe Canada's gotten to the point and Canadians have gotten to the point, all of us living in cities, where that should change. And so if we're ever going to revisit the Canadian Constitution to, I don't know, get rid of the Notwithstanding Act, which seems to have annoyed so many people, maybe while we're in there, we can fix cities and give them a right to exist and define what powers they have and what powers they don't have. Because right now, they've been kind of dumped on by provincial governments. Oh, we don't want to do welfare. You do that. It's got nothing to do with running a city, but we can hand it off to these poor suckers down at City Hall and let them worry about it. You're listening to News Talk today. This is the iHeartRadio Talk Network. My name is Mark Tui. Uh, when we come back, what can we learn from space to fix healthcare? It's what's happening right now. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hi, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you this afternoon. Thank you for riding along. I much appreciate your company. As I mentioned off the top of the show, I have argued and will continue to argue that healthcare, amongst many other challenges facing Canadians from a public policy process, is not something that we are going to improve or fix significantly by doing more of the same things. More money alone isn't going to fix this. We need more money in it, absolutely, because we have what we have, and we're going to have to make it work while we figure out a better way of doing things. But we have to be very creative, I think, at this point, because just continuing the trend line the way it has been over the last many generations isn't going to solve the problem. So we need new, creative, innovative ideas, which means we need new people thinking about it, and those people include you, they include me, not just experts who by and large, have a vested interest in it. And so they're often not the most creative people. But that means looking far afield from where we normally do. And you can't look much further afield than straight up past the sky into space where technology and people working at the frontiers of science and human performance have been living and working for, you know, my entire life almost. And so what can we learn from them? Well, a uh, article published uh, Monday in the, uh, where am I? There's my notes right there. The Canadian Family Physician Journal, authored by Dr. David Williams, Dr. Farhan Ashwar, uh, talks about what can we learn from space. And well, who would know better than Dr. David Williams? He is a Canadian astronaut. Uh, first selected for the space program back in 2009. He's a veteran of two shuttle flights. He's logged 687 hours in space, including three spacewalks, and he joins us right now. Dr. Williams, welcome to News Talk today. Oh, thanks very much. I'm thrilled to be able to share with you some of the insights we have from space medicine. And, and I think, I mean, in my head, I'm expecting there, some of those will be technology, some of those will just be 
responsibility and procedures and policy and self-reliance because when I think about your experience on the space shuttle, uh, astronauts on the space station, they're up there for, you know, a year at a time. Uh, it doesn't get much more remote than that. Uh, there's no emergency room. There's no ambulance there. There's uh, probably not much of an operating room or somebody, there's no cardiac surgeons up there unless they happen to be on a mission. Uh, not dissimilar to living in a very remote community here in Canada or even a small town. What did you learn from looking at space flight and how we manage the health and wellness of humans in space that we can apply here on Earth? Well, the greatest single application of space technology is to remote medical care here on Earth. And there's no question that this pandemic that we've all endured for the last couple of years has allowed us to embrace virtual medical care. Uh, that's a term now that we would routinely use, whereas uh, three, four years ago it was something quite foreign to us. So the technologies that we're developing for the space station, the technologies for lunar return, enhance the ability of local healthcare practitioners to deliver high-quality care, but they also enhance our ability to deliver virtual care, connecting remote uh, medical experts with uh, frontline healthcare providers. So a lot of us, I think, through pandemic have gotten comfortable with the idea that we're going to talk to a physician or a healthcare professional of some kind on the phone or through a, a video chat on Zoom or some other uh, dedicated uh, system. But there's a limitation there to what the doctor can actually do with us. On a space station and on space missions, there seems to be some prepositioning of equipment and technology and, and some knowledge so that if the doctor on Earth says, hey, you need this kind of information, we need to know your uh, blood sugar, we need to know so do some blood work, that that can now be done remotely by people who aren't necessarily you know, professional phlebotomists and lab technicians. Well, there's also been an evolution in body-worn technologies, you know, sensors. If you have an Apple Watch, you know that we can record heart rate, pulse oximetry, all sorts of medical data is now instantly available to end users. And then also if that data can be shared with clinicians, that can help provide uh, on-site medical care. But more importantly, a great example of how virtual medicine can change our lives is something as simple as a skin rash. If you go see a family doctor, they may know what the rash is in the case that they don't often they might ask for an opinion from a dermatologist and it can take a long time with current waiting lists and everything to be able to get to see a dermatologist with virtual care we can take a high resolution digital image or we can stream real-time video to a remote consultant and get an immediate diagnosis so how much of this is technology uh, based solutions and how much of it is getting our heads both as patients and professionally as medical practitioners around the idea of working remotely and therefore giving up a little bit of control. I remember as a soldier in the mid-90s going to a almost a solo mission in Mozambique and the doctor in my military unit gave me a whole bag of medicine. He said, don't take this unless you need to take it. Here's when you might need to take it. You should talk to a doctor on the radio to confirm that you do, but if you can't, here's what you need to look for. Here's how you use it. It must be the same in space. Is Can that be done more remotely through telemedicine? Well, there's no question there's a lot of factors that we can use to change the future of what we're calling virtual care. You know, the history of this was based on telephones, which is the origin of the word telemedicine. But with today's cloud computing, we can embrace the term virtual care or cloud-based care to enhance our ability to communicate remotely. And there's a number of different ways we can do that to provide local technology and remote locations to support 
medical care, providing consultants at a distance who have similar equipment who are able to then interact with local care providers. But more importantly, when we look at going back to the moon, we're looking at developing uh, healthcare technologies to enhance autonomy. So for situations where you don't have internet access or you don't have a doctor or a nurse available, what can you actually do? Well, in those cases, augmented reality technology and artificial intelligence can play a huge role in enhancing the ability of anyone to be able to provide local medical care. So do you see in small communities in the future very remote uh, work locations, for example, they might not have a doctor there, maybe they have another medical professional with different skills, but most communities of any size have a pharmacy and a lot of communities now are increasingly have good quality internet connections. So depending more on telemedicine, uh, you know, video medicine, and then having a pharmacy or someplace there that might have the equipment or the testing stuff or the medicine that they need and more doctors comfortable diagnosing, prescribing, and having that treatment done by not them, somebody else, somewhere else. Yeah. Well, right now I'm a CEO of a company called Leap Biosystems, and our goal is to develop uh, medical technologies to support lunar spaceflight, but we also recognize that these technologies can be used on Earth. So we say our goal is to develop uh, healthcare technologies to deliver healthcare everywhere. And a great example of that is for individuals who have major allergic reactions, life-threatening allergic reactions, if they have a peanut, often we recognize that we have to give them an injection of a medication called epinephrine to reduce uh, the effects of this allergic reaction and save their lives. People are sometimes afraid of doing that. They're intimidated to be able to take a syringe and inject it into a location on the person's body, even though they know it might save their life. So our company has developed an application uh, called AutoInject AR that uses augmented reality to help a non-medical user in guiding them through the exact steps that they would have to do to be able to perform that life-saving injection. And that's one of many examples how we can use modern technology to enhance uh, the ability of any individual to be able to deliver health care. I'm just uh, about out of time here, Dr. Uh, David Williams, Canadian astronaut and uh, author of a new article on what we can learn from space and apply to medicine here on the Earth. Are you getting any pushback from the uh, medical establishment? Are there any doctors that really don't want to give up control of some of these things? No, I think physicians and all healthcare professionals are willing to embrace any new ideas that will help us be more efficient in our care delivery. So in one sense, it's an exciting time as we reevaluate how we deliver care, the role for virtual medical care, and how some of these new technologies can make a difference. Dr. Dave Williams, thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, I think we're going to find uh, little bits and pieces of answers that either themselves might be something we can implement to improve health care across Canada or might spark you or me or somebody else to have another idea that builds on these things that kind of goes, aha, we could do this, maybe. That's how we're going to get ourselves out of this particular mess. My name is Mark Tui. This is News Talk Today. Prime Minister Pierre... Up here, I say that all the time. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, there you go, I just aged myself. He was dissed by the Premier of China. Overhyped or underplayed? Scott Reed joins us when we return. Keeping you informed daily. It's News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. 
overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. Overhyped or underplayed. My name is uh, Mark Tui, your host this afternoon. Uh, joining me now is Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator and former communication director for Prime Minister uh, Paul Martin. Uh, Scott, we all watched uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau get uh, either a talking to or a lecture or a diss or uh, what have you from uh, Chinese uh, uh, Premier Xi Jinping. Uh, they met, uh, they were standing up on the periphery of the uh, G20 conference uh, just uh, the, on Wednesday and through an interpreter, President Xi accused Trudeau of inappropriately uh, leaking uh, some information that, that they had discussed uh, and it was reported in the media and he didn't feel that it was an accurate reflection. Uh, we hear Xi Jinping uh, with his complaint through the voice of the translator and then Justin Trudeau says, yeah, but no, in Canada this is what we do. Everything we discuss is leaked to the paper, that's not appropriate. Canada will believe in your free and open and frank dialogue. So a lot of people made hay of this. It seems to me, Scott, if you love Justin Trudeau, uh, this was him schooling uh, the Chinese Communist Party. If you hate Justin Trudeau, this was the Chinese Communist Party leader schooling Justin Trudeau. Overhyped or underplayed? Wicked overhyped. Ridiculously, pointlessly overhyped. I mean, what actually happened? What happened is what happens at every single one of these meetings. You meet with a foreign leader, they have what's called a readout. It's a summary that's given to the media. Today, the prime minister spoke with the president. Today, the prime minister spoke with the other prime minister, blah, blah, blah. They discussed this and this and this and that and that and that. And then the other office does it. So President Xi has been doing this himself with all these uh, leaders and every other leader has been doing it with him. So, you know, uh, this is all just, it's just a reflection of where Chinese-Canadian relations are at. Uh, he's just hes just bashing on the guy. The whole actual issue is uh, false and phony. And it just goes to show you that, you know, this is what it's going to be like. Because now that the two Michaels are back, chances are Canada is going to be a little sterner. For a while, we had to mind our tongue because we wanted to get those guys back. Now, you know, we're going to take a little bit of a tougher stance here and there. And don't be surprised when the Chinese don't like it. And that's going to be the yin and yang of our relationship. Uh, do you think, though, that the Chinese are upset with Canada, or do you think that maybe Xi Jinping just uh, has such little regard for Canada and uh, our leadership that he was just annoyed by the whole process? Because I'm not sure this was them responding to what we did. I think this was them just kind of like, you, you don't belong at the adult's table. You shouldn't have said anything. Yeah, I don't believe that. I think um, we're G7 country. Trudeau's been on the world stage. Um, it's got nothing to do with are you an adult. We are adults. And so, um, and relations are pretty complex between China and Canada. So, you know, I think it's 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 him using a pretense to yell at Canada because he's mad at Canada and he's going to stay mad at Canada. And it's harder for him to yell at the United States than it is to yell at Canada. Uh, moving to our southern neighbors who often don't think about us as much as we like to think about them. And uh, yesterday, there was a very exciting presidential candidate threw his hat into the ring to the surprise of, well, almost nobody. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Yes, you know him, you love him. He's the man who made America great again. Uh, former U.S. President uh, Donald Trump wants to get his job back, even though he didn't lose it last time, according to him. But he wants to run again for a third term. But uh, 
The U.S. networks, uh, Scott Reed, uh, didn't carry it live. A lot of commentators have said, well, his candidacy would be the end of the Republican Party or it's the end of Donald Trump. Uh, overhyped, underplayed. Wildly underplayed. Wildly underplayed. Like, what a what a change a few weeks makes. You know, we had the midterm results. Obviously, some prominently backed Trump candidates lost. They were obviously, in part, they lost because they were Trump-backed. They were election deniers. They changed the focus from the economy to Trump himself. And they were bad candidates. He backed real dogs. And so all of that has caused everybody suddenly to say, hey, you know, don't take Trump seriously. Time has passed him on. Listen, He's got at least 35 to 40 percent of the Republican base by the throat. You end up with more than three candidates in this Republican nomination race. He's going to win. These are winner take all primaries. He goes into, you know, New Hampshire and he wins 35 percent of the vote. DeSantis gets 28. He gets all the delegates. That's going to happen right across the country. So I think it's underplayed in the sense that people suddenly act like, Donald Trump is in the rearview mirror. Sorry, I've got news for you. He's going nowhere. He's going to be a big part of our lives. He's still the guy to beat in the Republican nomination, and I wouldn't be one bit surprised if he wins it. In fact, at this point, I'd still be surprised if he loses it. Yeah, it'll be interesting. And President Joe Biden, uh, what what's your take on this? Is he going to be the Democratic candidate? It would make sense. It's very rare that an incumbent uh, president steps aside and lets somebody else, uh, you know, take take the the reins but his approval ratings are not much higher if if at all than donald trump's were and he's getting very old could he lose in a general election to donald trump he could Trump is probably the person he's most likely to beat, because if there's an election with Trump as a candidate, it becomes a referendum on Trump. And you probably lose that election. But, you know, Biden, I'll underscore the one, you know, polling numbers come up and down, all that stuff. He's old, man. Like, he's old. He's going to be 80 this month. And I think it's a big factor. And people get uncomfortable talking about it. Oh, is that being ageist? Listen, I've worked with G7 leaders. I've worked with the prime minister. I've been in meetings with the president. I know a little of what concentration and energy commitment it takes. I don't believe it's a job for an 80-year-old man. I just don't. And so I think it's going to be a big factor. The challenge is that there is not an obvious bench. You know, there isn't an obvious replacement. There isn't an obvious two or three outstanding candidates. And the Democrats within have their own divisions and problems. So, you know, will he run again? My guess is he won't. If Trump's the nominee, he'll be tempted. But my guess is he's going to have to bow to the reality that he is getting older and the vitality that's required simply doesn't exist. Canada's uh, Girl Guides announced that they are changing the name of the Brownies. That is the uh, organization for girls under 11. Uh, I guess initially, it, when they were first created, they were called the Rosebuds. They changed them to Brownies, which is apparently uh, English and Scottish folklorian for fairies and hobgoblins. But the Girl Guides have been told through the pandemic by a bunch of their members, their parents, the, uh, the young women, the girls, I guess, they're under 11, uh, that they are uncomfortable. Girls who are from, uh, you know, racialized, they say, black indigenous people of color don't like belonging to an organization that calls them brownies. They find it offensive, and sometimes they're made fun of. Overhyped? Underplayed? I think a little overhyped uh, in this particular way. Um, I regard this more as a shrug of the shoulders, and I'm not dismissing the good that girl guides do and so forth, but... Um, like, I just don't think it's that big a story. Like, you know, obviously, 
there is an implication regardless of the historical roots to the name brownies like obviously if you're a little southeast asian girl and you're being called a brownie um you know it wouldn't be it wouldn't be weird if you found that uncomfortable so i'm not shocked that they're making the change i guess if you think about it and i hadn't really thought a hell of a lot about it because i'm not a girl and i don't have daughters um I guess if you think about it, maybe the only shock is this is, hasn't happened already. But I think it's overplayed in the sense that I don't actually think it's this big breathless thing. But of course, in our politics these days, everything has to be consumed by the culture wars. And so now it's a big fight over whether or not people are bowing to political correctness or whatever. When it's just like, you know what, if it bothers a bunch of people, just do the polite thing and, you know, find a word that doesn't bother people. Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communication director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Thanks for your time. Thank you, sir. See ya. Overhyped and underplayed. Scott joins uh, us on uh, News Talk today every week. Always interested in his uh, commentary. And yeah, I'm kind of with him on the uh, the brownie thing. When I first read it, I thought, oh my God, not another stroke of woke freedom. And then I kind of read through it and I thought, yeah, who cares? If, if the kids don't like it, if the parents don't like it, if the organization doesn't like it, then change it. It'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Apparently, they're going to have a choice uh, in place uh, selected by uh, members of the Girl Guides of Canada by the end of January, and it will have been rebranded throughout the organization by the end of next year. Coming up is a brand new vaccine discovered at University of Houston, the cure for fentanyl addiction. It's News Talk today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, it's Mark Tui. Thanks for riding along with us. Canada is in the grips uh, of an opioid epidemic. We had uh, 4,000, almost 5,000 people die last year from overdoses of opioid uh, narcotics. Many of those included fentanyl, either with the knowledge or without the knowledge of the drug user. Often it's added by criminals to their product, even something as seemingly innocuous and legal in Canada as cannabis will occasionally be sprinkled or salted with fentanyl because it increases the high, it increases the addictivity of it and uh, makes it a more potent thing to sell, more likely that if your customer survives, they're going to come back for your product because it's just juiced up a little bit better than others. But it doesn't take much fentanyl to kill somebody. And a slight miscalculation by people who are putting it in places where no one expects it, you know, these are not exactly people who are noted for their diligence and application of safety uh, protocols. You know, two, the equivalent of uh, two grains of rice in weight, two milligrams of fentanyl can kill somebody. Fentanyl is a synthetic uh, opioid. It was intended as pain management. I had a, a heart procedure you know, a couple of months ago and uh, to manage the pain because it was getting painful at one point. Uh, you know, the, the, the doctor there increased the fentanyl that I was being given, which kind of sent shivers down my spine because I associate fentanyl with criminality and with overdoses. And it's touched so many families across the country. But hope, maybe from the University of Houston, who published a report, a study that they'd done in the journal Pharmaceutics. And one of the lead authors of that study is Colin Hale. Uh, he joins us now. He's a founding member of the University of Houston Drug Discovery Institute. And uh, Colin, you seem to have come up with what people are describing as a vaccine that might 
help people who are trying to get off of uh, fentanyl addiction. Uh, they wouldn't. How would it would help them get off by basically making them almost immune to the intoxicating effects of fentanyl? How does it work? That's true, Mark, and glad to be with you. Uh, the way the vaccine works is uh, the recipient of the vaccine generates anti-fentanyl antibodies. And I know this might seem strange because we're used to vaccines um, for bugs, such as bacterial viruses. This is a vaccine against a chemical. So when the individual generates these anti-fentanyl uh, antibodies, if they consume fentanyl, these antibodies will bind to the fentanyl and prevent the fentanyl from entering the brain, and then gradually it will be eliminated from the body. And this is the key mechanism of action, is that these antibodies bind to fentanyl and prevent it getting into the brain where it uh, affects circuitry involved in euphoria, reinforcement, and also overdose death. So could this be used for two purposes? Because uh, initially when I read it, uh, the focus of the article was talking about uh, an addict who's decided to get treatment, has uh, gotten off of uh, the drug, gone through detox, working through rehab, might have you know, stumbled and intentionally or unintentionally consumed fentanyl, and then they get that immediate high, and it's so powerful that it leads them back into the path of uh, substance abuse. This would prevent that high so they could get back on the wagon. But could it also protect uh, somebody almost as a prophylactic. You know, I'm taking cannabis, I'm worried that it's got fentanyl in it. Would it make sense to have the vaccine? It would prevent me from being, uh, from overdosing. Yes, indeed, Mark. And as you mentioned, uh, a lot of um, illicit drugs have been uh, contaminated with fentanyl. And individuals that uh, are wanting to take, for example, cocaine and they get fentanyl, then that's a problem and has uh, certainly contributed to the massive amount of overdose deaths. If an individual wanted to be protected, they could take the vaccine as a prophylactic, uh, even if they're not a drug user. Uh, those that may be um, uh, in, in vicinity of fentanyl and its derivatives, they would also be protected. Yeah, I can imagine a lot of uh, police officers, crime scene investigators, lab mm -hmm. technicians, EMS people that, you know, because I've talked to people who have been inadvertently uh, poisoned by, you know, drugs that they were around unintentionally. Um, I've got an interesting question uh, from a listener who's texted in at 71010 asking about uh, whether or not it's, it's pointing out that it, it's one thing to avoid the high so you don't become sort of addicted again, but... Uh, does it help at all with uh, withdrawal symptoms? Because that's part of the detoxification process. Is there any effect there? Or is that a separate issue for another solution? That is, that is a separate issue, and we have medications to address opioid withdrawal. Uh, this is a relapse prevention agent or a prophylaxis. Um, we see it as an adjunct to maintenance therapy that uh, those that really want to quit, that is what this vaccine is for. And how long do the effects last? Is this something that I take it once and I'm good for life, or do I have to re-up with the vaccine every uh, periodically? We see it as a, a typical vaccine. It, uh, our vaccine schedule is very similar to the hepatitis B vaccine, where you get an initial vaccination and then two boosters 
um, months months apart. Um, in our animal studies, we have had enduring prolonged uh, antibodies in in the animals upwards of 20 weeks, which is a lifetime for a rodent. Now, whether we get this enduring effects in humans, that is uh, for us to find out in the phase one clinical trials. Yeah, does uh, so it, we don't yet know phase one f- clinical trials are beginning. So, what's the timeline here? When might, might if everything goes you know optimally, when might we expect that this would be in production and available for use? And the vaccine, clinical grade vaccine, is being manufactured right now. The next step would be to do toxicology testing in rodents, which is required by the FDA. And then we would submit an application for approval uh, to the FDA. Once we get approval, then we can start uh, phase one clinical trials. And we have infrastructure in place right now when that happens. Fascinating. So uh, we'll wait for those study results because people with vaccines always worried about side effects. I guess we wouldn't know that until that's what the phase one trial would be for, right? Yes, uh, we are. We are very confident the the safety profile uh, will be very good. One component of the vaccine has is already in two vaccines that have been on the market for years and proven safe and effective. The other component of the vaccine has been developed over a decade and has also been in multiple human clinical trials and even uh, tested in infants with an excellent safety profile. Colin Hale, with I'm- that. I'm just about out of Sorry. time here. Uh, very quickly, I got about thirty seconds. Would this, though, prevent me from, uh, you know, being able to be sedated uh, in surgery, or is it just fentanyl, not other sort of uh, analgesics or uh, pain medication? Yeah, it only targets uh, fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives. And in the paper, we show that it does not interfere with morphine, methadone, buprenorphine, or oxycodone. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for your time. This is fascinating. I uh, look forward to sure. more information about the results of your trial. Glad to be with you. Colin Hale is the lead author of a study out of the University of Houston Drug Discovery Institute and a founding member of that group. They have developed a breakthrough vaccine for fentanyl. It keeps uh, drug users from uh, becoming intoxicated or overdosing on fentanyl. When we come back at the top of the hour, Marika Walsh with the Globe and Mail will bring us up to date on the inquiry in Ottawa. Here's what you need to know. This is News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And I am Mark Tui. So pleased to be riding along with you today. Very appreciative of your company. Happening now as it has been happening for, oh my goodness, I've even lost count. It seems like forever, but I think it's only been three weeks jam-packed with testimony. The Public Order Emergency Commission sitting in Ottawa, Justice Rouleau, uh, convening that. And we are learning day by day, layer by layer, page by page, through thousands of documents of evidence uh, tabled before the inquiry and the media and uh, testimony from various and sundry people who were involved in the decision leading up to the invocation of the Emergencies Act to deal with and bring to close the Freedom Convoy, the truckers' protest, the occupation of Ottawa and the blockade of 
of the Ambassador Bridge, uh, the Coots border crossing, etc., across the country. Uh, what did we learn yesterday and today? Bringing ourselves up to date, joining us uh, with some of that information is Globe and Mail political reporter Marika Walsh. Marika, welcome back to News Talk today. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. So I know the the big ticket draw, the main card, if you will, on the agenda today is supposed to be Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor to the Prime Minister. I don't know if she has started yet, but the mm-hmm. undercard this morning was uh, a, bunch, a trio of financial mandarins, Deputy Finance Minister Michael Sabia, Assistant Deputy Man- uh, Ministers, pardon me, uh, for Economic Policy, uh, Reese Mendez, and the Assistant Deputy Minister Isabel Jacques. Uh, they had some interesting stuff. Can you give us sort of a thumbnail of what they presented? Because I imagine they both uh, outlined the economic impact of the protests, but also uh, these are some of the people that were involved in the design of that, uh, the banking freeze order, the ability, the special order under the Emergencies Act that uh, basically Mm -hmm. froze bank accounts. What did we learn? Well, I mean, first of all, Michael Sabia is is not really a low-level player, but certainly when it comes to the questions around the Emergencies Act, Jody Thomas might have um, more relevant information to say. But Michael Sabia is essentially the top finance guru in Ottawa. He is deeply trusted by the Prime Minister's office, by Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland. And he's underlining and laying out the economic risks that the border blockades in particular had. We saw that as soon as the Ambassador Bridge was, lo- was blocked, It went from a five-alarm fire to a ten-alarm fire in Ottawa, at Queen's Park, and really across the country because all of a sudden the United States started taking a much deeper interest in what was happening with these trucker convoys. And that's really, I think, you can say from the time and what we see now is what spurred a lot more focus on the issue. And what Michael Sabia is saying is that there was a massive risk and massive concern that if Canada didn't deal with the border blockade at the Ambassador Bridge quickly, it would really hurt Canada's credibility as it was negotiating major deals with auto manufacturers and major lobby push in Washington to try and stop or slow their Buy America push at the White House. Yeah, and I think uh, I remember at the time, the minute that they uh, they blockaded the Ambassador Bridge mm-hmm. and traffic stopped flowing across that major cross-border uh, conduit. That's the first time that, in my mind, the whole trucker protest, the Freedom Convoy movement, became in any way, shape, or form a national security issue because our national security is predicated on our economy, and so much of our economy depends on cross-border trade. And that was the first time it put it at risk. Were these experts uh, able to sort of quantify what was at play? I think it's been difficult to really quantify. Certainly, it's in the hundreds of millions each day that that they estimate um, was lost to the economy. But it is there is a more complex sort of math happening because some some people that didn't cross at the Ambassador Bridge crossed elsewhere. On the other hand, some factories actually closed or slowed down shifts because they couldn't get the supplies they need. So certainly it was um, a massive hit, and we saw that from the companies, especially in and around Windsor, who really were stressing the issues that this was posing. But I think you raise a a certain – you're underlining a more important point in terms of the question of was the Emergencies Act warranted, because 
while you're correct that some definitions of national security look at the economy as a huge part of that, the Emergencies Act does not because it relies on the CSIS definitions of security threat. Yeah, And so this is one of the questions to look at is, you know, the government was pointing to economic security concerns as part of the justification for invoking the act, but that is not actually considered as one of the reasons for the act in the actual law. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. I mean, what what I seem to have seen, it'd be interesting to get your take, you follow this much more closely than I have, is all of the all of the the witnesses and the documents that might have provided uh, you know a direct recommendation to the decision makers cabinet the prime minister's office the prime minister that say we need to do this because this is a threat those sort of reasons don't seem to have held much water i don't think anybody questions that they were within their rights to make that decision but we're really now going to be looking at those decision makers and understanding, okay, you made the decision, what was your justification for it? And perhaps the closest link uh, is Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor, who mm-hmm. we're going to hear from today. I don't know, has her testimony uh, started? Uh, no, and if so, what are we learning? Okay. Yeah, what are you looking for? Yet. We're still with Michael Sabia. Well, what's very interesting with Jody Thomas is that we... We got a little bit of a prelude to her testimony and to some points of interest that will be important to explore with her from testimony earlier this week. So documents were tabled when Commissioner of the RCMP, Brenda Lucky, was on the witness stand that showed that Jody Thomas said in emails on February 14th, the day that they announced the invocation of the act, that she believed this was a threat to democracy, that the convoy protests went beyond covid and that it was rife with people who did not understand the democratic institutions in Canada and who threatened Canada's democracy. And she was asking the RCMP for a threat assessment when she said that in the email. And so I think there is important questions to understand where the government's understanding of what the threat to Canada was, where it came from, And who said it? Because we know now that CSIS said there was no national security threat as defined by the CSIS Act. But the OPP, for example, have said, while that wasn't the case, there was a national security threat as defined by public safety, which includes things like economic prosperity that you pointed to earlier. And so there's a very complex picture being painted, and we don't yet have that answer of who told the government that it met the threshold of the act. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what she adds uh, through her testimony because the, like, I thought that cross-border thing seemed to be a national security issue, perhaps a threat, but that was resolved before the Emergencies Act was invoked, wasn't it? It certainly was at the Ambassador Bridge and the um, blockade at Coos in Alberta was solved the day the act was invoked. Now, I think it's really important to note that it's at Coots, Alberta, where RCMP seized weapons and arrested people for, um, for I believe it was either plotting, plotting, I think it was plotting to kill RCMP officers connected to it. So clearly there was violence there, but because police made those arrests, it actually is what spurred the clearing of that blockade. And RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky has also said that nowhere where the RCMP had jurisdiction, so for example, at the Emerson blockade at the border in Manitoba, 
or at Coots in Alberta, did they use the powers under the Emergency Act? And so really, all of it comes back to Ottawa then, and what was done in Ottawa, and was it needed? Because we also learned that Brenda Lucky had notes prepared for Cabinet in which she could have said, or was planning to say, or it appeared she was planning to say, that there was finally a plan in place to deal with the protests in Ottawa, and the police had other tools available, and the Ambassador Bridge was going to be opening that night, that's February 14th, or excuse me, February Hmm. 13th. But she didn't deliver those messages at Cabinet. She attended the meeting, but didn't speak. Marika Walsh, uh, political reporter with The Globe and Mail, thanks for bringing us up to date. We'll have to find out tomorrow what Jody Thomas, the National Security Advisor, speaks or says when she speaks. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. We're going to take a uh, short break on News uh, Talk today. When we come back, your t- cell phone can predict earthquakes and give you warning. Hmm. Who knew? Staying on the story. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I uh, grew up in uh, British Columbia. The uh, the prevalent concern at the time was a nuclear war, because I was of the generation born in the mid-60s, that knew that inevitably we would all be wiped out by a nuclear conflict. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, the number two concern in British Columbia, especially if you lived on the coast, was earthquakes. And what can you do about an earthquake? Well, oh my goodness. Uh, and at the time, eh, not very much, it seemed. But uh, I know people have long been looking for a way to predict earthquakes and give people who live in earthquake-prone areas a little bit of advanced warning so that they can get to safety or do whatever it is you're supposed to do when an earthquake is imminent. And it turns out that you, that I, might now have in 2022 an earthquake early warning detection system in our pocket. A company out of the United States uh, called uh, Shake Alert has created an app, or the app is called Shake Alert, uh, that uh, allows cell phones to provide early warning of earthquakes. Your uh, app or your phone will give you that uh, that alarm sound, much like an amber alert or an emergency warning, and uh, then advise you that an earthquake is imminent, that you should immediately uh, take cover. That's awesome. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't remember how to hide from an earthquake. But my guest is Robert DeGroote. He's coordinator for communication, education, outreach, and technical engagement for ShakeAlert, the earthquake early warning system that might already be on your phone. Robert, uh, welcome to News Talk today. Oh, good morning. Great to join you. So is this an app or is this a capability that's built into a phone and do I have to have the brand newest phone and what kind of phone do I need to have to use it? Sure. So just a little bit of background. So I, I work for the United States government, the, the United States Geological Survey, and we operate an earthquake early warning system in the states of California, Oregon, and Washington. And so what we do is we actually sense the earthquakes in those three states and then provide data to app providers and others who could potentially deliver alerts to to cell phones. And the really good news is that earthquake early warning is coming to Canada, and it will be there in a few years. In fact, our, our government agency is working closely with Natural Resources Canada to help 
develop uh, an earthquake early warning system that will support several parts of Canada, but also the West Coast states of California, Oregon, Washington. So, uh, what? How? So, in those states today, if I'm there, and uh, I have a, an Apple iPhone, my son has an Android yeah. phone, would we automatically get a warning, or would we have to do something to sign up for that service? That's a, that's a really good question. So there are some apps and other services available to get ShakeAlert powered alerts on your phone. So if you're visiting one of those three states, one thing you can do, of course, is, is, is install them. One way to find out what's available when you're in California, Oregon, and Washington is to visit our website, shakealert.org. And right at the top of the page is a link to, to a page that will show you uh, what's available. So if you're visiting, you can set up your phone to receive those alerts. Um, in the United States, we have something called the Wireless Emergency Alert System, which is, uh, delivers alerts to phones for amber alerts and, and other emergency situations. If that system is, uh, is activated on your phone when you come to, the, to visit the West Coast, the U.S., uh, the, you will also get those alerts through that system as well if they're, if, they're, if they're distributed. So there are lots of ways to get these alerts if you happen to be visiting earthquake country uh, south of the border. So if I'm there now and this happens on my earthquake, phone... Earthquake, duck cover and hold Children, on, strong shaking expected. Duck cover and hold. So that's a clip. Duck cover and hold on. Strong shaking expected. Of somebody's app uh, alerting people in a classroom, the scenario uh, training uh, exercise. Uh, You're with the U.S. uh, Geological Survey. You might know the answer to this question. What do you do then? That's a great question. So what we want people to do if they feel shaking from an earthquake or if they get an alert is to drop cover and hold on. And the idea, the most important part of it is to, to get on the ground, to drop, because uh, the earthquake can throw you, toss you over, throw you, throw you over. And, uh, and the, the, also the good part is to get underneath something and to hold on to that table or whatever it may be. Because many people get injured from things that come off of walls or fall off the ceiling. So having something to protect your head is really important. If you don't have something to get under, getting next to an interior wall, making yourself a really small target, protecting your vital organs is critical. And so that's, that's the basic thing. And of course, there's other advice if you happen to be driving or if you're in a movie theater. And we, uh, we have lots of, lots of guidance in those areas. Okay, so uh, for the, the tech nerds amongst us, myself kind of includes but I'm a bit of an incompetent nerd. Uh, <laughs> how does this work? I mean, is there something... I mean, I know my phone can sense movement. Does it yeah. use that, or is it getting a signal from... Because I know the U.S. Geological Survey monitors earthquake uh, activity right. around the world, and I get alerts on Twitter and other things every time there's a significant earthquake anywhere. Yes, and, and actually our shake alert is on Twitter, at USGS underscore shake alert. And the the basic principle is is that we use existing technology seismometers that are in the field and in on the in the three west coast states we're aiming to get 1675 seismic stations installed by the end of 2025 we're about 80 83% of the way there now those sensors 
all they do is they detect a ground motion, and then that information is detected once the earthquake reaches the surface, and it's moved to a processing center. Basically, what it does is it, that that information is very quickly processed in a matter of seconds, and then an information package is made available to the Googles and to other partners who actually deliver alerts that tells them the basic information about how, how big the earthquake may be, where that earthquake is located, and also how much shaking that can occur around that quake. And so what happens is with that information, that allows the delivery service that we, we, we work with, the delivery service people, to um, make decisions about where to deliver alerts. So all your phone is receiving is some kind of notification, um, you know, via an app. It's a push notification, for example, that's sent to that phone that tells you to drop, cover, and hold on. So the phone itself is really only the receiver of the alert, but it's not doing anything much else than that. And because the system knows where my phone is, yeah. it will sort of geo-target it, so I'm not going to get a warning Excellent. on my phone when something happens in California if I'm in Toronto at the time. Excellent, excellent point, and, and that's, that's important to know, is that there, if you, you need to have location services activated on the phone so that generally the system will know, or whoever's doing the alert delivery knows where you are. Now, the only difference is, is the wireless emergency alert technology, the Amber Alerts, that's a little bit different. Um, it, they don't know where the phones are necessarily, but where they do know is they know where the cell phone towers are located, and those cell phone towers are effectively lit up during this event, and basically that alert is blasted out to all the phones in the, in the footprint of that, of that tower. That's interesting. I didn't know that. I've only got 60 seconds left, Robert DeGroot, but uh, how much warning might I get from a shake alert? All, all depends how far you're away from the earthquake. It could be zero seconds because you're super close to the epicenter, or it could be many seconds if you're farther away. We had an earthquake in near San Francisco back on October 25th, and the reports of some people got up to uh, 19 seconds worth of warning before shaking arrived at their location. So we know it works, and 2.1 million people were alerted during that earthquake back in October. And if you work in radio, you know exactly how long 19 seconds is, because that's, that's enough right. time to wrap up and throw to the next segment. Thank uh, you. Robert DeGroote, uh, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate this. It sounds fascinating. Not Nice to talk with you. Thank you. Robert is uh, with U.S. Geological Survey. They have a new app called Shake Alert. You can Google it. You can find uh, their Twitter account and what it will do if you're in California, Oregon, or Washington, or in Canada or other places uh, in the coming years. It will basically take over your phone, give you an alert like an amber alert that says, look, you've got, uh, there's an earthquake coming. Uh, so take cover. Drop and assume, take cover. Drop. Cover and hold. That's what he said. Uh, there you go. Uh, those of you who live in earthquake zones probably know that off your heart. When we come back to News uh, Talk today on the iHeartRadio uh, Talk Network, we'll talk with a Canadian diplomat about Canada's uh, new approach to China and whether or not it marks an important change. News Talk Today continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back. It is Mark Tui with you this afternoon. Thanks for riding along. Breaking news out of the United States uh, political arena last hour. We're not going to dive into it, but just thought I would pass it along. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, the uh, Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, has announced that she 
is uh, is stepping down from that position. That's not entirely unexpected. She announced uh, in, I think, two years ago that she probably wouldn't seek re-election to uh, the very powerful position. Puts her uh, within two heartbeats of the White House. The president is the president, the vice president is second in line, and then if something should happen to both of them, the, uh, the speaker of the House uh, takes over. And so she's obviously been at the center of uh, a bit of political intrigue with the attack, on, a horrific attack on her husband uh, a couple of weeks back. But uh, she turned that, she was the second woman, I think, uh, first woman to hold the top position in the House, uh, but uh, as Speaker of the House, but uh, she's been uh, done a remarkable job of making that one of the most politically powerful roles in the United States. So uh, without her on that job, another Democrat will no doubt be elected to be Speaker of the House. So that'll be an interesting change in the political power structure in Washington. Nancy Pelosi announcing that she will step down as uh, Speaker of the House after two decades uh, in leadership there. I wanted to talk a little bit about China. We we heard, we talked earlier with uh, Scott Reed about the the little uh, interaction between Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and uh, the Chinese uh, Premier Xi Jinping at the uh, G20. Uh, Jim, they, Trudeau came up basically to chat with them. Xi kind of swatted him down, saying that he didn't really appreciate the fact that their last conversation found its way into the press, uh, basically uh, challenging the, the Prime Minister uh, through a translator, as we hear a tiny little bit here. Everything we discussed is then leaked to the paper, that's not appropriate. Everything we discussed was leaked to the press, it wasn't appropriate. It's really a common practice of uh, explaining not the a transcript, but a readout, sort of a summary of what was discussed. And uh, he's participated in that practice before. So this could just be a little bit of uh, annoyance with Canada or the fact that a few weeks ago, uh, finance minister, not finance minister, foreign minister of foreign affairs, uh, Melanie Jolie, announced a new Canadian approach to relations with China. Uh, are we doing the right thing? Are we being too tough? Or are we not being tough enough? Well, let's uh, start our conversation and then broaden it a little bit with our guest, Ben Rosewell, is a former Canadian diplomat with a specialization in state building and stabilization. He's president and research director of the Canadian International Council. Ben, welcome to News Talk today. Thank you. It's great to be on the show. So uh, what's your take of that little interaction between the Prime Minister, the uh, the Premier of China, or the President of China, uh, I can't even remember his title, he's, he's one of the Communist Party of China and the other of the country, but uh, in any case, the big guy in charge. The head honcho. Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, arguably the most powerful man in the world, since uh, he has more unchallenged uh, power than even the President of the United States. So a... Uh, an incredibly disrespectful conversation between him and our leader is uh, is certainly something to take seriously. It's a sign of major disrespect for uh, for Canada. But is it worth worth it? I think that's probably your question. Is it merited that uh, that Trudeau would? Yeah, uh, I mean, disrespect is a big thing in China. In in Asian cultures, you disrespect somebody that you're that's a slap in the face with a wet fish. Uh, but our foreign minister, foreign affairs minister came out and said, Canada's going to take a new approach. We'll have a new foreign policy vis-a-vis -vis China. So, like, I'm a cynic. I've looked at Canada's relationship with China for a long time. I thought, well, we're just a pushover. Um, do we have to be? Should we be tougher? Can we be tougher? Or is it more trouble than it's worth? 
Well, we're certainly in a transition to becoming more tougher. A lot of people say better late than never. There's a fundamentally different regime in in uh, in office in in Beijing from the one that we've been used to for the last thirty years. Uh, there's a much more aggressive. Uh, approach not only to foreign policy, but uh, a willingness to interfere directly in our affairs here in Canada. And so I don't think it is, uh, uh, I don't think that the Prime Minister was wrong to raise this most recent issue, the one that uh, that caused so much irritation with Xi Jinping, um, which is the interference in our own politics. I mean, uh, the, the accusation here is that the Chinese government interfered in 11 different races for members of parliament, placing people into the uh, into the volunteer teams of politicians actually funding certain candidates, essentially trying to mess with our own democracy. And that's a very, very serious issue. Yeah, and it's not uh, the only, you know, grievance we have. We've got the two Michaels, the apprehension and the illegal hostage taking, basically, of two Canadian citizens to basic, to try to extort a, a, the outcome of a, a criminal proceeding in Canada. But they also have active uh, covert operations in Canada regularly. I mean, what should, from a foreign policy perspective, what should Canada want from China? It's a big market we'd like to trade with, but it's got a horrible human rights record, and it interferes domestically in Canada with our citizens and our democracy. What should we be, what should be our goal? Well, I'll start with foreign policy, but I do think that this issue of electoral interference goes well beyond. When it comes to foreign policy, we need to advance Canada's interests, security, prosperity, etc., um, by interacting with the world's powers, and China is the second most powerful country in the world. It is one on which we need its uh, cooperation in certain areas, climate change. Uh, certainly a lot of our uh, prosperity depends on on trade with Asia and a lot of it with China. And so there needs, at a, at a sort of professional state-to-state -state level, there needs to be an ability to have difficult conversations and separate them from other conversations where we might have something to agree. But I, I think this goes beyond foreign policy. That uh, what I've been talking about up until now is just the interest of the Canadian state in its de dealings with the Chinese state. But when the Chinese government arrests our citizens in order to exert pressure on us, and when they interfere in the relationship between a voter uh, and the politician that they're voting for, in, in other words, between us as citizens and our leaders, they're not just going after the Canadian state, they're going after us as citizens. And that is completely beyond the pale in international relations. That deserves a very strong response from Canada, arguably a lot stronger than just leaking the results of a, of a conversation with um, with the Premier of China, or sorry, with the um, with the Supreme Leader of China with our, uh, our own population. I think uh, Trudeau needs to go much farther than that. And if that's going to increase the ire of Xi Jinping, so be it. He needs to know that this is not going to land well in Canada, and that we're not going to stand up for that behavior. So Melanie Jolie, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, announced a new approach. What was your take on what we're planning to do? Did she get it right, or is there just not enough uh, known about it at this time, or should she be tougher? Well, we haven't seen the strategy itself. We're all looking forward to that. Based on what she said in her speech in Toronto on November 9th, it sounds like Canada is certainly going in the, the correct uh, direction. China, under Xi Jinping, has chosen to directly challenge norms on which the international system is based, uh, that, that we all depend on, um, all uh, countries of the world, especially the smaller countries of the world, in order to uh, to advance our interests. So we are finally recognizing that China is an adversary uh, and a potential threat to uh, to international 
uh, to international values. Ben Roswell, uh, I've only got about uh, 60 seconds left for you, and this I would love to have you back at some point for a further conversation, but does Canada do foreign policy? I mean, up until the Second World War, I, arguably we didn't have one, and I'm not sure I really detect much of a foreign policy connecting the threads of all of our different international exploits. We do, but there has been a tradition, a growing tradition, in fact, of doing it behind cold, uh, closed doors and being quiet about the conversations we have and the interests that we're pursuing. Um, it's, it runs counter to what the citizens of Canada ex expect, which is for us to be much more open. And to be honest, it makes it easier for government to hide and to uh, dodge the big decisions. And so I think when Canadians wonder if we have a foreign policy, one way of interpreting that is we need to be uh, it, much more public with the decisions that we're taking. We need to be willing to take much more difficult decisions and bigger risks, especially when you're dealing with a rising dangerous power like China. Yeah, that uh, leads down the road to a much longer and fascinating conversation. I hope to have it with you one day. Ben Rosewell, former Canadian okay. diplomat, president director of research director of the Canadian International Council. Thanks for your time today. Okay. Uh, when we come back, the last segment of uh, News Talk today, Dan Riskin, Dr. Dan Riskin will join us to risk it all, and we will find out uh, who is on their way around the moon right now. The Americans launched a rocket to the moon and it's full of people. Well, people like facsimiles. You're listening to News Talk Today on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. It's good for you overall. Yeah, this is great. This is, it's a dream, man. The headline is Risking It All. Yeah, I think that's where we're going with this. With Dan Riskin. One of my favorite uh, segments. Dr. Dan Riskin, welcome back to News Talk today. Thanks. Huge fan of the show. Happy to be here. Uh, so we uh, had a, a space launch last night, and this is back to the old style of space launches that are exorbitantly expensive, funded exclusively by the taxpayers, and delivered by government uh, contractors. Artemis One, the, the moon rocket, took off. Where is it going, and uh, who's on board? Yeah, well, so they've got some dummies on board. Uh, and, so uh, I could so have been this on board. Exactly, exactly. But unfortunately, they didn't get your application in time. You were a little late sending it in. And so instead, they've got uh, three other dummies on there. Uh, one of them is a human-sized mannequin called Munikin. That's like mannequin, but moon. Get that? Munikin Campos. And Campos is a nod to Arturo Campos, who was an engineer on that doomed Apollo 13 mission and uh, is largely credited with coming up with the solution that saved the lives of those astronauts. And if you haven't seen the movie Apollo 13, oh, you're missing out. It's amazing. It really tells the story beautifully. Um, and so that's one of the, the dummies. And then the other two dummies are perhaps even more interesting. One is called Helga and one is called Zohar. They are from Germany. And uh, these two dummies are there to measure radiation. So they're, they're actually not entire bodies. They're just torsos and heads. But they're shaped like uh, women because women uh, suffer a lot more from radiation than men do, largely because of breast tissue and the way it absorbs radiation. And so hmm. uh, they are using these two dummies. And one of them is wearing a vest to protect it from radiation. The other one is not. And they're gonna, they've got like 10,000 sensors in each one of them. And they're built out of materials that mimic bone and flesh and all the other stuff. And uh, they're going to have a look to see what the effects of radiation are for that trip to the moon. Because, uh, you know, here on Earth, we're spoiled. We have this magnetic field that protects us. But even if you go to the ISS, 
the the radiation levels jumped 250 times and it, on this trip to the moon it's thought the radiation levels could be 700 times worse and so uh, figuring out how to deal with that is pretty important for the trip to the moon if it's a month long but it's very important if we're thinking about going to mars yeah, the ISS, the International Space Station in low Earth orbit, uh, it's not that far from home. And I, it, I is it close enough to Earth to get any protection from our sort of, uh, what is it, the magnetic yeah, I think field? you get a diminished, a diminished amount of protection, but still 250 times worse is not, you know, it's, it's still not great. Yeah, and these dummies are interesting. I think you and I talked before. I mean, these are like quantum leaps in advancement beyond the type of dummies that they use in automobile testing, which really just... I think, look at sort of acceleration. Uh, but the the technology that just went into the dummies has got to be a phenomenal advance. Yeah, and that's what I love about space stuff, is as soon as you ask like a little question, what what kind of dummies you got? They're like, oh, we've spent years working on these dummies, and they're the best dummies you'll ever see. And then you learn about them, you're like, oh yeah, those dummies are awesome. And, or just the hose that connects from this thing to that thing, it's the same thing. There's so much work and time goes into this. And yes, it's expensive. I mean, you alluded to that over the top. Um, you know, estimates are, you know, on the order of $93 billion that it's cost for this Artemis mission. But, you know, it's interesting because a, a year ago, I think public sentiment was, this is dumb. You're wasting tons of money and you're taking way too long. Let's let private industry do this faster. And a lot of people still feel that way. SpaceX has done amazing stuff. Uh, you've got Virgin Galactic, you've got Blue Origin. But I would argue that things are starting to shift a little bit. Not, and I, I, don't, I don't put any value on that, whether it's for better or for worse, but I do think the conversation has changed a little bit. First of all, with the launch of Artemis 1, NASA has shown that they can get it done instead of it being this theoretical thing that they're working on that's costing tons of money. They've, they've launched, and by the time this mission ends, hopefully they'll, they'll have successfully come back, and people will be able to see better that they're capable of accomplishing what they're setting out to do. But the other thing is that the billionaires aren't really doing themselves any favors. When you look at these sort of joy rides that, uh, you know, that Branson's taking up to the edge of space or William Shatner going up there with Jeff Bezos, it kind of looks like a game that billionaires are playing that doesn't necessarily help move the space program forward, but sure looks like a lot of fun if you have an unlimited amount of wealth. And I think that people are feeling like, is that who, where I want the money to go? If, if NASA's got a budget, do I really want them to give that money to these joyriding billionaires to make their little elevator things? Or do I want it to go to a NASA program that's a little bit more like what I'm used to, especially with China now having a space station, China having plans to go to the moon. If you had Elon Musk, you know, running the program to go to the moon, which is possible, uh, you know, who's to say he's not going to suddenly decide that China's part of it and that, that then the U.S. isn't doing it against China. Now U.S. is just part of a mix with China. I don't know how people would feel about that. Or what if Elon Musk suddenly decides he needs to send a really important tweet about marijuana and sort of drops the ball on the space program? Putting all our eggs in the billionaire's basket might not be the best way forward. So I think the conversation is shifting, and I think that NASA has definitely put its value up quite a bit with a successful launch. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see whether they can sustain that, because the cost for the Artemis flights is, I think it's one or two, maybe even more orders of magnitude greater than the uh, the SpaceX flights. And I will agree with you on the Virgin Galactic and the Blue Origin ones. There, do, there seems to be two classes of the private sector space industry. There's the the, the tourism joyride-driven stuff. Elon Musk so far seems to have been much more utilitarian and actually being a contractor-like, uh, both for his own expeditionary interests but also for government. And I would suspect if if everybody did what they said they were going to do, Elon Musk will have humans on Mars before NASA gets humans on Moon. 
Yeah, and that's quite possible, and and you know, for, I think that's that's great. I mean, as long as as we're moving forward, I think that's wonderful. But I think that when people sort of, it used to be that people just sort of had very few fears about the idea of this being in private industry, and and Tesla's still great, and SpaceX is still great, but the you know the last couple of weeks with Twitter has shown a side of Elon Musk that maybe shows that sometimes he's not thinking that far ahead, or he's a little reactionary, and that's you know I think that we as a humanity put a lot of value. A lot of us put a lot of value into the space program. It really matters. It really is a reflection of where our species is at. And so to put that much control in the hands of an unelected billionaire, uh, you know, it just doesn't sit right with some people. I'm not saying that it should or shouldn't. I'm not saying it, it, it's a good or bad, but I'm saying the conversation is definitely becoming more interesting with this successful launch. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, just about out of time, Dan Riskin, but uh, what are you looking forward to in space? Like, when is the next milestone for Artemis that will be fascinating to pay attention to? Listen, this whole mission is all about the re-entry. That's where it's going to get interesting because this thing's going to come screaming down towards Earth and it's going to do something called a skip re-entry, which has not ever happened, where it's going to basically come in so fast that it bounces off the atmosphere once to slow it down a little bit and then comes in a second time, almost like a rock skipping on the water. And uh, good that they're testing this with the dummies on board before they do it with people. <laughs> but I think uh, we want to see if that works and successful splashdown would be great. Uh, that's really the big question mark for this for this whole mission right now. Yeah, that. Uh, when when is that expected? December 11th. December 11th, so not that far away. But nope. uh, Dan Riskin, Dr. Dan Riskin, thanks for your time. Always a pleasure to find out what is going on in the scientific world around us. I appreciate it. The pleasure's mine. Thanks a lot. Yeah, this will be interesting to what it has cost them so much money. I would expect that uh, you know Elon Musk's plans to go to Mars are probably going to ultimately be cheaper than NASA's plans to go back to the moon. And uh, I'm not, I don't know. If I was going to put money on it, I'd bet on Musk. One of the things that made him successful is his willingness to take m bold decisions and make mistakes, learn from them quickly, and turn them around. And his approach to rocketry is the same. He blows rockets up all the time, and that's not a flaw, it's a feature. He does it to see what happens and to like, okay, will this work? And they test it and it doesn't. So they figure out what went wrong and they do it again and it blows up and they figure out what went wrong and they do it again. As long as you're doing that with no people on board and you're financing it, uh, it's such a faster way to do things, contrary to the NASA thing. Thanks to Tony Tedesco. Thanks to Samantha Pope. Thank you to you for putting up with me for two hours. If you're in Toronto, stick around. I'm going to join Deb Hutton on The Rush coming up.